This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. A large white sign, a sentinel, the size you'd see along the highway, guards one of the Easterday's farms near the Columbia River. On the white background, in big maroon writing, it says Easterday Farms, Private Road, No Trespassing. The big steerhead family brand is stamped there, too. Beyond the sign and a big metal gate rolls a ribbon of freshly graded gravel road. It slices through the verdant fields, down a hill, and beyond it, the Columbia River. But this big old sign is coming down. The Easterday family was forced to sell off this massive farm and several others. It's all a result of the Ag Titan's major bankruptcy. The value of this land is incredible. But really, it's the water. The Columbia Basin is a desert until you put water on it. Out here, rainwater is measured by the hundredths of an inch that drops onto dryland wheat fields, or it's guzzled out of the mighty Columbia River and raced through a circulatory system of irrigation pivots and sprinkler heads to high-value crops. Water's that valuable because crops on land, given the right fertilizer and a summer's worth of sun, equals big money. An additional five inches of water can mean all the difference on the same field of wheat. Six inches can mean ruin, while 11 inches means plenty. That's just five inches difference for a total bust or a thrilling bin buster yield. And the Easterday property is right on the Columbia River. If you've not been on the Columbia and you, you stand there, the size is extremely impressive, particularly at that location. This is Daryl Olson. He's the head of a group that advocates for farmer irrigators across eastern Washington. And that impressive, cold, deep Columbia River water greens up the Easterday farm. And it's, it's somewhat sublime in that you can stand there and you can't take it all in. You know, you, you literally can't see the whole property unless you're in an airplane. So it just seems vast, it seems endless, it's green, and it's being irrigated with mainstem Columbia River water rights. God's country? Better than that. <laughs> The Easterdays had reached the pinnacle of their power. They had some of the most valuable land on the planet. But on this episode, we'll examine what Cody Easterday and his family will lose. When their property was sold, it triggered a bidding war, pitting some of the wealthiest people and religious institutions. Yeah, a big church 
against each other. It's a clash of titans over Easterday's sprawling and treasured farmland. This is a story of the value of Western land and water. This is Ghost Herd. I'm Anna King. The GPS of this John Deere combine sounds off as the tractor slowly cuts down a big swath of wheat. Inside the cab, things are really calm and cool. AC makes sure of that. But outside the protective bubble, a 30-foot wide circular blade cuts down the crackling, dry, golden wheat. This iconic green and yellow tractor then sucks up all that cut wheat into the guts of the machine, a lot like your lawnmower at home. All the while kicking up a cloud of dust and bits of chaff into the stubble it leaves behind. It's harvest time on this 600 acre parcel at the Berg family farm. We've had some tough, tough weather, you know, trying to get through that. And then it, it wasn't very hot this summer. You know, until the very end, and so the bluegrass is a little tough to harvest. Nicole Berg stands at the corner of Burt James Road and Sellers Road, a remote intersection in the Horsehaven Hills, about an hour south of Basin City. She surveys the field and the work as her nephew Ben works the combine. Nicole is the fourth generation to own this farm. This type of operation is what we tend to think of when we buy our bread, eggs, or meat. Her great-grandfather started as a sheep farmer on this land in 1934, but it was her grandfather, Art Berg, that really taught Nicole how to farm. And she says her grandpa preferred the old machines of his youth to these new fancy John Deere's. So my grandpa, he uh, didn't like these combines because they, they have calves, and he said that you always need to eat more dirt. And so back in his day, the combines didn't even have calves or air conditioning. Can you imagine? <laughs> if not having air conditioning in a combine, it would be miserable and dirty. <laughs> Nicole tells me her grandpa believed eating dirt was the only way to understand farming. And Art ate a lot of that fresh dirt. Nicole started to take this dryland wheat ranch over from her parents and uncle in 1997. She was a fresh generation of farmer. She went into business alongside her brothers. I've always said it's kind of hard to farm with somebody who you, you threw a bowl of cereal at. <laughs> and they've grown the operation, both to sustain them and to leave something for the next generation. Nicole has one niece and four nephews, many of whom want to come back and farm. But this kind of succession of family farmers is becoming a lot more rare these days. More than 40% of America's farmland is owned by people over the age of 65. So we estimate that around 370 million acres of farmland, that's about one third of U.S. farmland, is likely to transition in the next 15 years. 
That's Addie Candib. She's the head of the Northwest Region of American Farmland Trust. We are at a transitional period for America's farmland, and the Cody Easterday saga highlights the changes we are seeing. After Cody's court battle with Tyson and the bankruptcy, the cowboy was backed into a corner. He was forced to sell his 22,000 acres of farmland. It's the empire of dirt he had spent his entire life piling up. This was the land Cody used to grow his big money crops like potatoes and onions. And now the money from the sale would be used to pay back Tyson and the millions he owed to other creditors from his big cattle swindle. So right out of the gate, some big time investors were eyeing Cody's big spread. The top dog of this group is a name you might recognize. Bill Gates, the Microsoft founder, is one of the richest people in the world, and through his investment firms, he is the largest owner of private farmland in America. According to the trade journal Land Report, he owns 242,000 acres nationwide, an empire worth $5 billion. Last year at a Reddit virtual session where he was promoting his book, How to Avoid a Climate Disaster, Gates was asked, why buy so much farmland? He said his investment group decided on it. It's not connected to climate. Farmland typically will become part of a corporate farm management portfolio where a company manages that land as part of a suite of other lands. Farmland has become an asset for wealthy investors. It's one way to diversify. Farmland returns often do better than the returns from the stock market. So institutional investors like universities and pension plans have known this for a long time. They typically keep about 10% of their portfolios in natural resources. It's like that old saying, buy land. They're not making it anymore. Addie says that investors understand a core value of farmland is the ability to produce food. They understand that Our population is growing, farmland is dwindling, and climate change is making agriculture riskier and more unpredictable, which makes every available acre that much more valuable. But the real value of the Easterday property goes beyond just the land. It's the water. And this giant farm guarantees its buyer access to the steady flow of the Columbia. Water rights are how our government divvied up a scarce resource in the West. It's sort of like a deed, a piece of paper that means you own the use of that water. It's usually tied to a particular parcel of land. Water rights rule the West. If you have them, they make you money. In Washington state, the most valuable water rights are senior water rights. Those are the really old ones. Think pioneers circa 1850s. Those senior water rights were given to the first white settlers. They divvied up the rivers. There are also junior water rights, newer ones. They get reduced or cut off in drought years. But senior water rights always get their draw of water. And in the Northwest, there are no new water rights. So without them, you can't build new developments, water crops, or even keep water in streams for fish. 
That's what makes Cody Easterday's farms along the Columbia River so valuable. They come with those senior water rights attached, and that's why big investors are so interested in his land. And they know the value will only increase in this time of climate change. I mean, there is no doubt that Western United States is seeing the effects of climate change. I mean, that's, that's verified. This is Daryl Olson again. He's fought for Northwest farmers' water rights for 30 years. So water supply under changing climate conditions in Western United States is going to decline. That's all there is to it. And again, the one major exception is what we're doing on the main stem snake in Columbia. Daryl says we're lucky here in the Northwest because the Columbia River watershed is fed by snow from the Canadian mountains. So even if Washington and Oregon are in drought, there's still often plentiful water in the Columbia. Like on the Easterday Farm, they have senior water rights to the Columbia River, meaning whoever owns this land will almost never be out of water. I mean, the handwriting is on the wall. You, you need to be somewhere where you've got a long-term stable supply of water. If you're in California, I, I guarantee people are looking up here with a great deal of envy at the main stem snake in Columbia and the system that we have and the water rights that we have available. Daryl says the Easterday land with this stable supply of water will become more and more valuable in the future. So it's no wonder Gates and his investment firms are interested in this Washington desert jewel. And water rights like this don't come up that often. Like they're not, they're not on the open market very often. Not a block this size. As we go forward, <clears throat> you know, Easter Day, that level of uh, quantity of water, the quality of the water rights, the location, um, we're probably not going to see anything like that again, at least not in my lifetime. But all this valuable water also piqued the interest of another large investor. Enter the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, famous for the Tabernacle Choir and owning vast swaths of American farmland. The church invests heavily in farmland. The church operates a tax-paying entity called Ag Reserves that owns and operates large agricultural properties across the U.S., Latin America, and Europe. They actually own more than 2% of the state of Florida. And the church is in the top five private landowners in the country. And now you have a very, very wealthy church that can buy some of the most prime properties in the United States. That's Betsy Gaines Quammen. She's an environmental historian. She lives in Bozeman, Montana, and specializes in Mormon settlement and public land conflicts. And that's what they're doing, competing with people like Bill Gates. But why would a church be interested in owning farmland? One, for the same reason as everyone else, it's just a good investment. But they also hold some deeper reasons for wanting the land. When the LDS refugees arrived in Utah in 1847, they emphasized building a Mormon empire. 
They sent settlers throughout the West to claim land for the church. They were building Zion, a holy land where all believers could come and live in harmony. To understand the Latter-day Saints' drive to cultivate land, look at the book of Isaiah, chapter 35, verse 1. It says, The wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. There's an emphasis on making the desert bloom, and this was very much a part of early church theology. It was making the desert, which was Zion, bloom like the rose. And early church members were able to build irrigation systems to make very difficult land arable. And in doing so, they were able to grow all sorts of amazing fruits, different kinds of apples, quince, plums, grapes, all these things in very marginal lands that, as I said, other white settlers had overlooked. Of course, indigenous people were using this landscape long before the LDS members settled here, planted quince and plums. Native Americans were moving with the seasons, gathering and hunting on these lands, and the LDS people tended to settle around the water springs and key areas that indigenous peoples relied on too. That displacement actually caused many native people to starve in the Great Basin. And there were also bloody conflicts with Native Americans. Those battles have names like Bear River and Circleville. Later, LDS people assimilated and indoctrinated Native children in schools and adopted them into white families. Despite that hard-to-hear history, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is focused keenly on the future. They believe there will be a second coming of Christ and a need to prepare their people. Gordon B. Hinckley, a former president of the church, summed up why they are so willing to spend millions on farmland. We have felt that good farms over a long period represent a safe investment where the assets of the church may be preserved and enhanced, while at the same time they are available as an agricultural resource to feed people should there come a time of need. And a time of need requires preparation, food, money, farmland. There is an emphasis on being ready for the end of days. And that's not a stretch. I mean, these are the latter-day saints. So that, that really is... And a part of, of identity. So land becomes important for all those different reasons. So the table was set. It was a bidding war. Bill Gates and his billions versus the LDS church and its billions. Now let's go have an auction. That bidding war starts after this break.
At Soundside, we bring you news and conversation rooted in the Pacific Northwest. Hi, I'm Libby Denkman. I think of my job hosting Soundside as number one, asking tough questions of powerful people, the questions you, KUOW listeners, want answered. And two, bringing you a daily slice of the fascinating, confounding, and often goofy side of life in Washington State. Join me for Soundside at noon and 8 p.m. on KUOW or anytime on the Soundside podcast. So this Easterday land is about to go up for auction to the highest bidder. The man in charge of that auction is Sky Root. I know who the big buyers are. I know who I, I know who can write a big check, who has the money, who wants to own. When large pieces of farmland like this are up for auction, Sky organizes it all. He'll make calls and send emails to potential buyers to gauge interest. On these big transactions, it's usually sign an NDA. Uh, and you know, non-disclosure agreement, and we'll send you some information, and you can tell us if you're interested or not in, in looking at the deal. And so that's normally how that process would run, uh, and that's how that process ran you know, here as well. There were a few local buyers that were interested in the land, but they didn't want to buy the entire property altogether. They wanted the 22,000 acres to be broken up and sold as smaller parcels. We went down the, the road of dividing it up, Dividing up the Easterday land would have allowed for slightly smaller scale regional farmers to be able to play. Sky says they had considered that, but ultimately his job is to get the most money for the land. We couldn't maximize value breaking this farm up, and we tried. But at the end of the day, uh, the the whole, selling it as a whole unit um, was how we maximize value. The twenty two thousand acres sold as one block would push the price tag into the hundreds of millions of dollars. That cut out most local farmers. Only big institutional investors could afford to bid. The auction was the culmination of weeks of work. Sky took potential bidders for in-person tours of the land. He told me his truck knew the farm well by the closing. In mid-June of 2021, Teams of lawyers and finance experts from each of the sides logged into a secure video call. In the middle of the COVID issues. So, uh, but yeah, there were groups of people that were together at different places throughout the country, really. There isn't an actual auctioneer talking fast in a setting like this. It's just lawyers on behalf of a few parties, some in jackets and ties, everyone on a video call in their own offices meticulously going through the process, bid after bid. There were multiple rounds. Uh, like, I, I couldn't even tell you how many rounds, but there were many rounds of the auction and with the price going up and up and up and up and up. Sky says the whole thing took hours. We worked through the bids in a very systematic process and uh, and got to a, a winner. The LDS Church won the auction for $210 million. The Easterday property now belonged to Salt Lake, 22,000 acres in the Columbia Basin, and all those valuable senior water rights. Big land dealer Skyroot says massive land deals like this are what's ahead. He sees big farmers getting bigger and institutions buying more farmland. More land will be owned by less hands.
instead of you know grandma all the grandmas and grandpas of the of the United States owning 80 acres apiece, which has been generally the kind of history, I see more and more large farmers that uh, that you know privately owned ground. They're big farmers. They've taken that risk, and uh, and so it's you know in some ways it's efficient for our food system. Um, but it's sad for, uh, you know, when I contemplate my upbringing and growing up on a, on a farm and, and, uh, and all that that did for me as a person and my siblings and all that kind of stuff, that's the sad part is that, uh, unfortunately my opinion is that in 15, 20 years from now, we're going to see less and less connection to the farmland. I mean, we're already seeing it. I'm not prophesying anything that's not already happening, but I think we're just going to see more of it. All these recent huge investments in farmland are driving up the price for farmers themselves. From 2020 to 2021, farmland values in the Northwest increased between 5 and 10 percent. It's making it harder for family farmers like Nicole Berg to compete and hand down the land to the next generation. When I see that kind of bidding war going on between LDS and, and like Bill Gates, it, it kind of makes you as a family farm going, man, I'm out. I, I can't, we can't afford that. I mean, probably could, but I don't want to because it doesn't, it doesn't pencil as far as a, a farming business. And so they've taken other equity from other places and brought it into agriculture. And so is it right, wrong, or indifferent? I don't know. We still need to feed what, 9 billion people across the world. And so I, I do look at that side of the humanitarian aspect of it, but then on the flip side, there's a true passion across the country for farmers and family farmers to stay in business and to keep family farming. Farmers are getting squeezed, and that's making it harder to own land. That's crushing to any aspiring farmer. Ever since white farmers came into this region and started planting their crops, their prosperity and power has always come from having control of the land. Addie Kandib with the American Farmland Trust says land ownership is fundamental to the psyche of our country. The West was settled by people who were promised land because land meant wealth. And if you could go somewhere and get your hands on a piece of land, there was the possibility to acquire more and build a future for yourself. So land as wealth is not new. And I think as we start to look askance at people who are amassing significant wealth through land, we have to look at our legacy because that's where it all started. On what was once the Easterday's prized farm, the last bolt in a new sign is affixed into place. Unlike the Easterday's sign, this one reads Agra Northwest, a new farm name for this beautiful place and new management. But the same crops. Corn is growing tall here again. On the final episode of Ghost Herd, we'll look at how big institutions gobbling up ag lands is turning American farmers into renters. Growing up on a farm but never owning a farm, I farm here because it's what I can get. We'll examine the mythology of the West and 
It's Judgment Day for Cody Easterday. This is Ghost Herd. I'm Anna King. Ghost Herd is a joint production of KUOW, Puget Sound Public Radio, and Northwest Public Broadcasting, both members of the NPR Network, a coalition of public media podcast makers. To support our work, contribute to KUOW, NWPB, or your local NPR station, and tell a friend or two about this podcast. It helps. Ghost Herd is produced by Matt Martin and me, Anna King. Whitney Henry Lester is our project manager. Jim Gates is our editor. Original music written and performed by James D. Kindle, recorded by Addison Schulberg, with additional musicians Roger Conley, Andy Steele, and Adam Lang. I'm your host, Anna King. If you have thoughts or questions about Ghost Herd, we're listening. Get in touch at kow.org feedback. Hey, my name's Claire McGrain, and I'm a producer for Seattle Now, KUOW's local news podcast. There is a lot happening in our region, and it's a lot of work to keep track of it all. We'll get you caught up on the latest news and take a deep dive into something happening around the city, all in under 15 minutes. Get a morning walk-in or grab a cup of coffee and start your day with us. Learn something new and connect with our city by searching for Seattle Now wherever you get your podcasts.